Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Hey, everybody. We got a great one today. You know, for a change. Alex Edelman, who opens on Broadway tomorrow with his award-winning show, Just For Us. The award was an Obie for Off-Broadway. Obie, Off-Broadway. But starting tomorrow, it's on Broadway at the Hudson Theater. In between, he's taken the show to choo-choo-choo-choo-choo-choo-choo-choo, Washington, D.C., sold out. Then, zoom, off to London, sold out. Then zoom to Boston, sold out. Then choo-choo-choo-choo-choo-choo-choo-choo, back to New York, where it's opening on Broadway. Broadway, Broadway, Broadway. You can get tickets at justforusshow.com. Oh, and by the way, there's actually no singing in Just For Us. No, it's a hilarious show about white supremacy al there's nothing funny about white supremacy really well then you haven't seen just for us see this is a one-man show about something he did a few years ago which is read something on twitter inviting folks to a neo-nazi meeting in queens and alex an orthodox jew goes and it's hilarious that's right. Alex is orthodox. He, he keeps kosher. There are a lot of Jews in comedy. Lenny Bruce had an explanation uh, for that. It comes down to when we were slaves uh, in Egypt. Yeah, I said we. That's right. I'm Jewish. I don't know if I've mentioned that before. Anyway, so Lenny said we became comedians because when we were slaves building the pyramids, that was back-breaking work. And there was always this charming Jew who was funny and entertained the Egyptian taskmasters to get out of doing work. And that's why we became comedians. Don't worry, that's not an Alex's show. It's much, much better than that. Now, normally when I have comedians on, and that's what I do on the Al Franken podcast, Serious, public policy discussion, and every once in a while, a comedian. Well, then, usually the comedians I have are household names, David Letterman, Sarah Silverman, Chris Rock. You may not know Alex Edelman now, but you will after listening to our conversation. I'm telling you, you're going to love this one. You know, for a change. The best way to learn a language Immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that, means, that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply.
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So, you know, I sent some uh, friends of mine from uh, Boston to your show. My roommate's in college wife, and she lives in West Newton. You got, you're from West Newton? I'm from Brookline, which is one town over. Oh, oh yeah, okay. So anyway, she just loves, loves the show. And she told me, she said, this, this normal looking guy comes out. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> She's not a, a, a sophisticated comedy goer, I guess. And this normal looking guy comes out and he's hilarious for the whole time. I just laughed and laughed and laughed. And I know nothing about Judaism, really. <laughs> That's hysterical. Well, you know, I did leave my clown paint at home and I was panicking before the show. I was like, oh, God, I'm going to look normal. God forbid I look normal. It's very disarming that you look normal. <laughs> I don't think you look normal. I think you look like a Jewish kid from Brookline. Yeah, well, it's funny that that woman would be the first person to ever call me normal. So thank you. So that was the uh, Boston run. And before that was the D.C. run. And before that was, or where did the London run come in? London was between DC and Boston. Oh, okay. So uh, there's a montage here, right? New York, train DC, jet London, jet back to Boston, train back to New York for Broadway. I can't believe it's going on Broadway, Al. I'm freaking out. Well, this started as a humble uh, little off-Broadway show. Uh, I'm talking about Just For Us that I saw. Sold out like forever, right? It was sold out every night you were there. We did. We did. It was lucky. It was lucky. It was lucky. You know, it was lucky that you were good every night. A lot of stuff it has to do with timing, right? People, it's so funny to say this, but uh, people really want comedy right now. And, the, and they want comedy about white supremacy. Yeah. They want comedy with a little bit of theatrical heft. They want comedy crossed. <laughs> they want comedy crossed with. A little bit of a white nationalist uh, commentary or commentary on white nationalism, sure, done by a normal looking Jew from Boston, I guess. But yeah, it's been really interesting and really, and I, I mean that not as like a light euphemism, it really has been interesting, like meeting people and hearing their thoughts on Judaism and whiteness in the show. Well, Just For Us is about you, and probably only you would do this online, saw basically a neo-Nazi meeting in Brooklyn. If that's a premise, <laughs> that's that's the premise. And you go. You decide to go. Take that person who thought I looked normal. Yeah, well, you know, they didn't couldn't see inside your your brain and your un unnormal brain. And um comedy happens in the room. You try to hide the fact, but not enough that you're Jewish. Well, I think about this a lot. It's a thing that no one ever asks me really, but Part of me when I was in the weeks afterwards was like, how did only a few of them sussed out that I was uh, Jewish? And I don't know. I think the funny thing is I think of myself as sort of looking a bit Semitic, but I suppose that people have asked me in the past if I was Jewish or been surprised when I told them I was Jewish. But I guess maybe you're not looking for it in a place like that. Maybe you're not thinking that the guy sitting in the room with you at the meeting of uh, what I would call white nationalists uh, celebrates Passover in a significant way or something like that. But you kind of throughout the evening with them or was it an afternoon? It was an afternoon thing. Yeah. I mean, I, at some point I said something at some point I, I, I not to ruin part of the show, but I get asked pretty directly, but yeah, I said something because there was a discussion going on and you know, I sort of out myself. Yeah. So and we we become scared <laughs> for you at that moment. Yeah. Yet it's funny. It's funny scared. Comedy intention. Oh, let me write that down. Comedy intention. T E N. 
Oh, come on. So uh, taken differently in D.C., taken more like, oh, this is really about America. Is that how it was taken in D.C.? Yeah, that is exactly what sort of happened in D.C. In New York, it was viewed as sort of a entertainment piece with a bit of thoughtfulness behind it. And in D.C., it was treated sort of as like a piece of thoughtful, subversive theater that had a comedy bent to it, but was really about something. It was really about America. D.C., everything they interpret, they go, that's about America, because we're in D.C. here. <laughs> They're not wrong. No, no. Uh, in New York, there was also in New York a little bit of a Jewy audience, don't you think? I mean, everywhere there's been some of uh, something of a Jewish audience. <laughs> but when I was previewing the show... <laughs> they can be Jewy without being Jewish, right? Like there are people who are who are not Jewish, but they're they love the sort of discourse around. They love discourse. They love uh, things that Jews might like. But uh, but yeah, in London there are many fewer Jews. So yeah, I guess New York was the first place where our audience was like thirty to forty percent Jewish. Maybe a little more some nights. Maybe a little less. But it was nice to do something that uh, Jews and non-Jews kind of enjoyed. But it didn't seem to sort of compromise the Jewishness of it, I guess, the Jewiness of it. And uh, look, you can be Jewy without being Jewish, and you can be Jewish without being Jewy, and you can be both. So let's—I just wanted to clarify that for anyone. Now you're an Orthodox Jew. Is that common in show business? I mean, you'd know better than I would, probably, but I don't think there are a ton. No. <laughs> well, I thought maybe this uh, younger. Uh, I don't know. I just was, you know, when I went to the show, I didn't realize you were Orthodox, and then I did, and I went, oh, funny, funny Orthodox Jew. <laughs> I like to, I like to say that I'm like Reform. I like to say that I'm like, I'm not lapsed Orthodox, but like I perform on Shabbos. I'd rather not to, but I have to, which is like, or I feel like I have to, which is the type of, you know. That's where I would classify my Judaism. And people sometimes reach out to me to tell me how horrible a guy I am for performing on Shabbos, and I always think they're right. So that's uh, that's a level of Judaism, I guess, I find myself falling at. Could you make an announcement just to scare people on Friday nights with the Shabbos Goy substituting for Alex Edelman? That would be so funny. Who would that Shabbos Goy be? Who would be standing in for me? Brian Gustafson. Brian Gustafson, the Shabbos Goy, a Tonight Show will be the show will be performed by Mel Gibson in a huge, in a redemption arc for the man. Right, and he's been dying to do it. Yes, and uh, and he was at the meetings. No, he wasn't. He wasn't. So <laughs> the meetings are of the neo Nazis. No, he, yeah, I don't know what his, is his Catholic order. Anti-Semitic probably is, right? I don't know. I think, you know, the, the issue with any public monster, with few with a few exceptions, is that because of the sort of Talmudic upbringing that I have, and I guess this is applicable to the show, it'd be so easy to write off Mel Gibson, and I don't think we'll be dining together anytime soon. But I'm much more interested in, like, why a person is that way than even with, like, uh, Trump, who I absolutely despise, there is a, a d despised and despise. I'm curious what made him such a craven. Really? Uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry, Al, you say really? I assume it means because you're such a fan. But. Uh, you know, I mean, there's uh, what made him this way, uh, clearly something to do with his father. But also, you know, there is a, a, a certain kind of, uh, what, what do they call it, malignant narcissist. And that's... Something he is, but it it worked for him, in you know in a way, we got him again. I mean, I don't see anybody in that field. Have you been watching um, Desantis at all? I've been following closely, and it feels like I'm almost irritated at the Republicans for not grooming a successor in a more in a more intelligent way because they they anointed this guy as the second coming of. Republican, whatever, and then Trump. Trump called him, you know, sweaty Ron for a week, and the guy falls apart. Have you seen the uh, the the clip of him? In, I think it was New Hampshire, where he asks the guy his name, and the guy tells him his name, and he just goes, "Okay." <laughs> 
And then the way, way over the top. Yeah. Laugh he does at the car show with a guy. I think he just doesn't know how to be personable because I don't think he's personable. I don't think he's a very, I don't want to be controversial here in front of your listen, listenership, but I don't think he's a very nice man. And I think pretending to have to be a nice man is actually really grating on him in a way that, uh, look, not everybody, not everyone can be cuddly. Not everyone can be, but to be a human being should be at least be the bare minimum. And it, it looks like he's not quite getting there. Well, uh, look, there are people in politics who like people. I'm one of them. There are people, I think, in politics who don't like people but can pull it off. But boy, oh boy, this guy, um, he doesn't seem to like people. I wonder... You know, Mark Leibovich, who's who who you introduced me to his work, uh, the the guy who wrote This Town and who and who wrote the profile of of you and and who I I know for a fact has been on the podcast because I've listened to that episode. He points out in that book, This Town, which is such a funny book, that politicians it's actually a really terrific job for an introvert because you get to hide behind a sort of anodyne, blandly pleasant. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. He calls it a cut and paste persona. He attributes it to Tom Daschle. He, sa he says that a lot of politicians are shy and private and they enter the business because it lets them remain shy and private behind uh, the public cut and paste persona. And I think that you got to fake the cut and paste persona well enough, even if you're not a people person. Except that, that being the majority leader which he was, Dashiell. You you have to, you know, get along. Just get along with your your colleagues and be a leader there. That doesn't mean you have to be a great personality. But he 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 had something other than just nothing. But to run for president, you know, man oh man, that is meeting people, meeting people, meeting people, meeting people, meeting people. You got to have something, and we've seen that Clinton had it. And we saw that Obama had it. Now, Trump didn't have it. Trump doesn't like people, but he had something else. He's the closest thing to a stand-up, right, that we've had. Truly. I've said this before, but his campaign mainly was on CNN. And CNN, as soon as they saw his plane circling, would cut to that and know that they had their audience. And then he could riff. He could get up there and talk for an hour, an hour and a half, and just riff, which is a talent. Yeah. And I've never seen him laugh, but he made his audience laugh. Oh, my God. I've never seen him laugh. No, I don't. I've never seen him laugh. Do you, you know the uh, tradition in... Um, the Al Smith dinner? Yeah. Okay, the Al Smith dinner is like, I don't know, a couple nights before the election. And the tradition is that the nominees from both parties do a roast of each other, do jokes. And I don't think, he didn't do it with Biden, I don't think, but he did it with Hillary. I was on with uh, Rachel Maddow just to kind of be there before and be there after, you know. <laughs> and I said, uh, then I said, I've never seen him laugh. And, you know, when your uh, opponent is telling jokes about you, no matter how mean, and they aren't that mean at the L. Smith dinner, you're supposed to laugh. And he couldn't. <laughs> well, he didn't laugh when Obama made fun of him at the, uh, at the White House correspondence. Well, that was very different. That was very different. That was, uh, okay, well, first of all, I admit, you're supposed to be, you're supposed to laugh at these dinners no matter what, right? But it was kind of vicious. It wasn't that vicious. Uh, it was like I, Obama saying, I can't imagine having to make the kind of decisions that Trump had to make, you know, on Celebrity Apprentice, whether to fire Gary Busey or not. <laughs> and man, he, uh, Trump did not like that. And normally, of course, again, you're supposed to you're supposed to laugh, right? Some people said that's when he decided to run. for. I don't think so. I think he decided to run for president because he didn't think he was going to win, but it was good for his marketing. But why does he want it again? Well, first of all, he, he doesn't want to admit he lost, right? So this is about, it's about a whole bunch of different things. 
And also, I think he liked being president, but I don't think he thought he was going to win. I just can't get over how unimpressive he is, Al. That's the one <laughs> thing that I keep. I just can't. It bothers me so much that even, even DeSantis, who I think is very scary and not good with people, which is surprising, there is a distinctiveness to his cruelty that is focused and and like hard edged. There's something like there's a focus to DeSantis that I think scares some Democrats or left leaning folks more than Trump. I don't agree. I'm more afraid of Donald Trump. But yeah. Donald Trump, this again the riffing. He has charisma, and he has an El Duce aspect to him. He has. He's sort of a prototypical strongman in in an odd fucking way. Look, I I don't understand it. You know, most of the Republican Party believes he won. Still. It can't be most at this point, Al, truly. Most? Yeah. Oh, gosh. And that's social media. That's that's how segmented we are as a society. And there are a lot of people like the people you visit in just for us. Mm Mm-hmm. There are more than more than you'd think, I'm for sure. God, you did a comedy show about anti-Semitism, racism at the perfect time. <laughs> you know, people said to me, they went, it's so timely, your show about anti-Semitism. And I said, you do a show about anti-Semitism. If you want to do a show that's going to be evergreen, do a show about how water is wet and anti-Semitism is a problem. <laughs> it's never, It's never going away. I mean, I, I say that it's been interesting watching these sort of intense conversations about anti-Semitism happening in, in places that you'd you not quite think. And there's actually a lot of art on Broadway right now about anti-Semitism. There's Leopoldstadt, the Stoppard play. There's Parade, the musical about Leo Frank. Mm-hmm. My show's coming, a show called Prayer for the French Republic, which is about French anti-Semitism's coming. And the thing is... <laughs> They're all really entertaining. Like I've seen all of the shows, uh, with the exception of mine. I haven't seen that one, but I've been in it. There's something really entertaining. And so I pulled pulled one of the people who's involved, one of the writers of the shows aside. And I said, have you noticed that all of our sh- the shows about anti-Semitism are really propulsive? And he looked at me like I was an idiot. And he said, yeah, otherwise no one would care. He said, you need a great story for it. Otherwise no one... But give a shit. He's like, you think people are out here to to sympathize with uh, with Jews if they're not Jewish? No, it's gonna. You have to make it fun. You have to make it funny. You have to make the songs great. And the the songs in Parade are great. And the Tom Stoppard is an incredible playwright writing Leopoldstadt. Okay, Parade is about uh, this uh, Jewish guy who's convicted of a murder in Atlanta what about 1912 i think something like that and we don't know whether he's guilty or not i have not seen the show i mean the consensus now is that he's not guilty but there's still you know the sentence now is that he's not guilty but people are always very very unsure and and um, we bend over backwards yeah you don't want to cast dispersion on anyone without certain but he got it was a sort of sham trial and his sentence was commuted to life in prison, but uh, he was lynched shortly thereafterwards. And, it, you know, when you raised Orthodox Jewish or Jewish at all in the United States, the Leo Frank case is something you hear about and think about again and again and again. So to see a musical about it, that is really tuneful. And it's interesting. And Alfred Urey wrote that, uh, wrote that script. He, the guy who Alfred Urey wrote Driving Miss Daisy and Last Days of Ballyhoo. And, you know, he's, He's such a Al, have you ever done Broadway? Have you ever thought of, you know, writing for Broadway? Well, I can sing <laughs> pretty damn well. I can carry a tune and show them hell. How's that for an audition? I mean, you got the part. You got the part. If Mel Gibson can't make it, you're the understudy. Okay. Well, there's no singing in yours, is there? I can't. No, no but the, there's no reason you can't try. But you take us to, to uh, your crazy dad. He's not crazy, but he's very orthodox. And there's a Christmas um, story. Yeah. 
a Christmas story there where uh, a woman has been widowed or something uh, wants to celebrate Christmas at your house. Is that it? A woman who lost a bunch of her family members that had nowhere to go for the holiday. My mother invited her for Christmas and my father, it took him a minute to come around, but when he came around, he, he sort of performed brilliantly in terms of the hospitality of it. And there's a big question, you know, and I tell the story on stage because the story is about this sort of like empathy for others and to what does that empathy extend? Does it extend to white nationalists? Doesn't matter who folks are, doesn't matter how they feel about us. Does, but yeah, the story itself is, you know, a 12 minute bit and I did it on This American Life and people sometimes stop me in the street and they ask to see the picture of us standing in front of the Christmas tree, which is a which is hilarious to me. But I do have the picture. Because the Christmas tree is in the garage. This is the concession that had to be made to your father. Yes, my, my father was like, I will not have a Christmas tree in a Jewish home. And my mother was like, I can respect that, Elazar. We'll, we'll pop it in the garage. So we have these great pictures of us. So the picture is you and your brother, and you're blonde in it. Blonde, white, white blonde almost. You know that thing with kids you have? Kids and their hair is blonde, 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 and then it then it turns into some sort of sad brown normal looking person. That's right. Who who's suddenly funny. <laughs> I sometimes wonder what makes someone funny. And uh and I get asked about it now. I have no oh my answer god. to it. What do you mean, oh my god? Well, it's it's like what makes someone like what made Jerry Garcia Jerry Garcia. It's it's either you know have it or you don't. I tell this story about Mel Blank. Do you know this? Ever I said this story to you? No. Mel Blank did the voices on Looney Tune, right? Maybe one of the funniest people ever lived. Mel Blank. He trained his kid, his son, to do the voices, to do all the voices, and with the idea that when Mel had to retire, that the son could do the voices. He got the job, and he didn't last that long in the job because he wasn't, he just wasn't funny. And so you ask about, like, what makes someone funny? I don't know. But there's a thing of, like, talent. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and boy, do you got it. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Alex Edelman. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Hey, let me add, you're a writer too. You write for TV sometimes, right? Yeah, yes. So, uh, do you have any... Any thoughts on the writer's strike other than, have you been picketing? I've been picketing. Wait, the writers are striking? No, I mean, yeah, I've uh, I've been out there on the picket lines. And look, I'm a little dismayed by the DGA striking a deal so easily, but very buoyed by the Screen Actors Guild authorizing their um, union to strike if they need to. So, uh, look, I'm a proud TV writer. I desperately want to get back to work. But also, the changes that are being asked for seem like existential ones, as well as, uh, first of all, these these companies are these huge behemoths, and they obscure their their numbers and their data, 
and it's sort of accepted practice, but no one knows whether these companies are making boatloads of money as they claim on their earnings calls or losing boatloads of money as they claim when the writers come asking for a piece of the pie. So I think more transparency and responsible conversations around AI. AI is the one that's vexing to me because I had never thought about it as a huge creative issue. Because just as you said, Al, you know, how's AI going to do the voice of Bugs Bunny, right? Like how can an AI... <laughs> right? It's not going to be funny. It's going to be horrible. But it seems to be a big deal now, right? It seems like it's possible. And I spoke to a friend of mine who's a studio executive and I said, should I be worried about this? And he said, no, it's just going to be procedurals. What? We're just going to use it for procedurals. I'm like, that that feels worse. So you're going to make bad television worse? Is feels really awful to me. Oh, but. AI is just going to be used for procedurals. Yeah. So the procedurals are Cop shows, hospital shows. Legal shows. Well, legal shows. <laughs> I mean. Oh, that's fine. Yeah. Oh, you mean the thing that most of America watches on television? And also, what is that? That's crazy. Yes, we. there are formulas for plots, I guess. But gee whiz, what makes a show good is what makes it human. And, well, AI is a big <laughs> <laughs> it's a big problem in terms of uh, national security issues. <laughs> and, and will the robots kill us all? There's that, too. I mean, that's that's the bigger thing. I saw a story recently saying that a bunch of engineers who were working on AI, you know, had all signed a letter saying they're concerned that AI is a threat to humanity. And then I saw another story that an AI in a simulation attacked a drone operator that was stopping it from trying to hit its target. I'm like, that seems, that seems not great. That seems less than ideal that, uh, that that's going to happen. And I hate that that has some valence to who writes jokes about masturbation for an animated show on Hulu or something, but it does, <laughs> it does feel like the two threats are second cousins to each other. So, so we should, Probably be a little circumspect about about what's uh, what's going on. So yeah, I'm very much for the strike. Al, have you gle- have you gleaned anything from being out there, uh, you know, on the lines or talking to folks? Well, I mean, what I glean is there's specific issues about you know the, the number of shows that are made in these streaming series where you're signed on to do six shows instead of or an eight show season where it used to be twenty six shows. And you don't get residuals on some of them. And it's harder for writers to make a living. And there's more writing jobs, I suppose. But um, I think that depending on what level you are as a writer, it makes a difference. And it's, I think uh, at a certain level, it's very hard for people to be able to rely on, on what they get for, for making a living and having a retirement. I think there's a good question. Uh, and I actually don't know that it's a partisan one. I think it's much more nuanced and thoughtful, which is about the arresting of progress, which is how do you deal with progress that maybe for the first time in, in human history is really, truly trying to supplant uh, labor in a way that may not serve hardly anyone. Except for the fewest, fewest, few. Like, are we are we going to suppress this technology? Are we going to make sure that everyone who would benefit from it is equally supported by it? By the way, we're also in competition with China, so there's also that kind of threat. And so you say, should we stop our advance? Should we put a little moratorium on the advance of AI? Well, we're also competing with the Chinese. Now, them, I don't count on for coming up with comedy AI. No. Did, did you hear about, I don't want to be like, did you hear about this? But in China, they've recently um, issued a warning to various stand-up comedians. There's a co- <laughs> oh, no. Yes. You know, Ai Weiwei, the artist, once said that the Chinese Communist Party is the funniest thing that's ever existed, but it has no sense of humor. 
There's a How, uh, there's how's a he doing? Ai Weiwei. I don't know that he's uh, spending much time in Beijing these days. I think he's mostly around the world. But but there's a comedian named Li Haoshi, and Li Haoshi did a joke about how well trained Chinese military animals are, and the comedy theater where he went on was fined something like you know a million dollars, and the Communist Party has been canceling a lot of stand-ups and musicals in China. It's it's interesting when you hear some of the more conservative comedians here complain about free speech in comedy when there are actually Chinese comedians and Middle Eastern comedians who literally can't say anything because they might be might be killed or or silenced or fined in you know prohibitive amount. Now these right-wing comedians can find an audience, right? Yeah, of course. And they have. And they're hilarious. <laughs> they're so funny. You know, they're just, it's just so difficult to make fun of people who are experiencing homelessness. So it's it's just so delightful to watch a comedian <laughs> do a fresh routine about those less fortunate than them. <laughs> really, uh, really refreshing and really, really funny. Remember, remember uh, the Jay Leno joke? This is a great Jay Leno joke. The Reagan administration had reduced the number of uh, homeless people by recategorizing them as outdoorsmen. That's hysterical. Yeah, he's funny. He's I've seen him sometimes at the. Uh, by the way, Jay Leno also performed at the 1987 White House Correspondents' Dinner. I loved watching when I was a kid. I watched all those late night shows. I think my sense of humor comes completely from TV that I watched after my parents went to bed. You know, I'd sneak downstairs and watch uh, stuff they, frankly, I don't know, they would let me watch. I'd watch The Simpsons and, you know, Malcolm in the Middle and Raymond and Letterman and, and Leno and... and uh, God, you're young. When I'm thinking of Malcolm in the Middle as having... <laughs> yes, uh, going back to my influences. <laughs> Malcolm in the Middle. <laughs> Look, Steve Scroven. Jesus Christ. This is great. Malcolm in the Middle is an underrated television show. I think it gets lost. I'm sure it was. I just know that I was 60 <laughs> when it was on or something like that. <laughs> Jesus Christ. You weren't you were 60 when it was on. I wonder when Malcolm in the Middle was on. Okay, I was in my 50s, though. I mean, I think. Also, your books. And We've talked about this many times, how big a deal your books your books made me annoy Evan Thomas. I would I would show up at Evan Thomas's office at Harvard at the Kennedy School of Government and bother him because I had read about him in Lies and the Lying Liars Who Tell Them. No, the, the, the where he appeared in that is that Ann Coulter had said he was Norman Thomas's son. And Norman Thomas was his grandfather or great-grandfather, right? Yeah, yeah, great. I think grandfather. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just <laughs> thought, well, oh, come on. You can do better than that. I mean, they had Google then, right? There's a great joke in there where you ask Evan Thomas, you go, uh, hey, are you Norman Thomas's son? And Evan Thomas just goes, is this about the Ann Coulter thing? <laughs> <laughs> and, he's, and he says, uh, no, I'm, I'm his grandson. And you say, are you sure? <laughs> and, and he says, Al, what's wrong with her? Which is a really, which is a recurring thing. And you know what is interesting, though, about comedy in comedy clubs is that Ann Coulter is like around. Sometimes she comes to the comedy cellar. You know, I'd see her at the comedy cellar. And it is really interesting because comedy, you wind up sharing tables and, and, and lineups with folks who have very different opinions than you. Well, that's, that's <laughs> healthy in a way, unless it's Ann Coulter. Mm-hmm. I did two debates with her once and one was um, there, there's a couple of YouTube videos on it. The one I did at, Hart, at the Hartford Forum. And my wife, uh, Franny, uh, as we were driving back to New York, uh, referred to her as that poor deer. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> I remember there was, one, there was one piece of that where the moderator asked her, some question like, who would you have not, like not to have ever existed? And she says FDR because we wouldn't have the New Deal. 
And he goes to me, and I said, um, well, she'd have FDR. I'd have Hitler because, you know, the Holocaust. <laughs> and she wouldn't have the New Deal. I wouldn't have the Anschluss. I wouldn't have the oh, Anschluss. Poor dear. <laughs> well, at least you were picking from the same time period, you know? At least it was. Uh... I felt that, that we needed some yeah, symmetry. Couldn't you guys compromise and agree on Stalin? Stalin would have been uh, a good compromise, but she went for FDR, not being around. <laughs> like the greatest president. <laughs> like Lincoln, Lincoln, FDR, Lincoln, FDR, FDR, Lincoln, FDR, Lincoln, Lincoln, FDR. Who would you like not to not existed? One of the two great friends we ever had who saved the country. From the Great Depression and World War II. I just, you got to assume, though, that the real reason is that she hates people from Hyde Park, New York. It's a lovely little town. Like, why? Well, she's from something like that, right? She looks like she's from Connecticut or something, right? Yes. Uh, she must be. And I only judge people by their looks. I mean, I, I mean, that you have that in common with your friend who thought I looked normal. <laughs> I wouldn't, that's the funny thing, is I wouldn't say that you're normal looking. Normal looking is like um, bland and, you know, symmetric. Isn't that <laughs> symmetric? And you're calling me ugly? Am I being, are you saying I'm, I'm Picassoid? I guess I am. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, symmetry is considered a quality of good looks, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and I'd say that symmetry isn't your your greatest attribute. I think you're a good-looking guy and and not so good that you're not abnormal. That's the highest compliment I could give anyone. I mean, <laughs> and I had really, to struggle to come up with that. Yeah, well, people people should come to the Broadway show and judge themselves. Fill out fill out forms on a scale of 1 to 10 vis-a-vis -vis my attractiveness. I guarantee it would be somewhere in between nine and six. Oh wow! You don't think that there's someone out there who finds me a ten? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm the Maxwell Silver Hammer for one person. On a curve, on a curve, you've got a ten, a few tens, but the bell curve is going to peak at eight point one, seven point nine. <laughs> Why don't we do it? Look. You don't don't do it opening night. That'd be weird. Yeah, yeah, absolutely not. But I think that's a really good idea. Asking folks what they, what the, what they, and think. you just say be honest. We've given you each reach under your seats. Uh, yeah. I mean, Al, I seriously think uh, I want to use this semi-public platform to urge you towards more live stand-up and more live long-form shows because you know the people that I know who have gone to see you in LA and New York, really enjoyed your stuff. Well, thanks. I enjoy doing it. I just got a little, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say to you, but you're in the uh, same theater every night, night after night after night. The The road is hard. Of course. You know, but no, I'm going to be doing, I'm going to continue to do it. And I think I got a couple shows coming up and I feel like I got to write some new stuff. I mean, you you you're writing constantly. Whenever I run into you, you're always writing, writing, writing. Yeah, but I mean good stuff. <laughs> that, that's the only point. I no, I'm I'm I I intend to keep doing that. It's fun, and, and uh, there's nothing like getting laughs, is there? No, it's the best thing in the world. Truly, I mean, to get a laugh is just. Uh, the best feeling. Uh, okay, you're doing the same show. Yeah, right? you know, I'm making some changes and it varies i know that you vary it up and you must yeah, just course. keep yourself sane it's the only right? way to do it is it changing or is it really just kind of playing around the edges and every once in a while trying this and other trying that or does it change you know mike berbiglia who's a solo show comedian who's also one of the producers of the show said to me that solo shows are more like poetry than prose so they change, the show does change in the sense that jokes come out, jokes go in, but the real work of the show is that like, it, it's comedy, it's entertaining all the way through, but the clauses, you take out three clauses 
in the right place and put in one more and the show goes in a different direction, which I always thought was a little silly when he told me that. I was like, come on, Mike, you can't steer the ship like that. And he gave me one example. I want to hear it. He said, if you did this, if you said in one moment, you said, you know, I'm really concerned with pleasing people. And I ruin said, your show. I can't put that there. It would ruin the show. And he just went, see? I said, see, that's a, it's a whole different direction. So I spent a lot of time with him and with, with various folks. Well, that, that, that doesn't necessarily prove the rule. No, it doesn't. Because, you know, like, I'm really uh, concerned with Jews. <laughs> I mean, that's, well, with your show, you're, that, that, that's not a no, good No, no, I mean, like, but I'm saying it. But you know I, what I'm saying. But, There's, of course. That well, no, no, no. What I'm but saying, please. Al, is that if you put that in one particular bit, the bit can become about that. And then when the bit's about that, you know, that chunk of the show can start to be about that. So I guess the answer is, like, I nudge the show in a certain direction every night. and We have big conversations about it. So night on night, you just be like, ah, you're messing around with the edges. But by the end of a run... You're like, gosh, the show is pretty different, and it's three minutes longer, or three minutes shorter. In 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 uh, in DC, the show was, you know, an hour thirty three on the first night, and an hour twenty five on the last night. And there was there was more somehow in the hour twenty five show, and it's not more is less. Yes, exactly. No, less is more. <laughs> I got it wrong. It's the same thing then, right? If more is less, then less is also more. So you're right. That's right. So the answer is very boring, but you know, technically, there are things that uh, that go back and forth and up and down, and it's a it's a blast to do the show. Well, I'm gonna go say I've I've seen the show only once, but uh, I've had so many friends, of course, see it. I'd love for you to come to see the show again. I'd be thrilled if you and Franny came. That would be that would be well, a blast. We, we loved me. it. Now, uh, once the strikes are over, you're gonna start. Writing TV again, and I'll do a little bit more. I love performing; I really do. I'll be definitely writing also, but gosh, do I love performing! It's the best thing in the world. You know, people truly love it. You know, especially when you're the writer. Oh yeah, and you know, it's all you. You know, and it's all you out there, and there's nothing but you. You're out there, and you're delivering a line, and you can deliver it a million different ways, and you can change shit around and and listen you just listen your ear is out there there's nothing quite like it getting laughs i mean how old were you when you started doing comedy i was probably 16 17 when i started going to little open mics here and there okay that's open mics but your your school had a stage in brookline yeah and did they not encourage the kids to get on stage? No. Are you kidding? Come on. In Brooklyn? Orthodox Jewish school? No. No? Oh, no. at an Orthodox Jewish school, they don't encourage kids to get on stage. They didn't for me. Wow. See, that to me is, I tell parents, if you want your kids to perform, every school has a stage. And every adult in the school encourages kids to get up on stage, but not in Orthodox schools. Okay. That's where you people are different. What do you mean, you people? D different from conservative and reformed Jews. I mean, we were encouraged to express ourselves, but it is mostly by being quiet. <laughs> 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 and study the Talmud, you know. Uh -huh. That was how we were encouraged to express ourselves, you know. I had a lucky upbringing in the sense that that in, in Jewish homes, I have found, in many other homes too, but Jewish homes in particular, you are taught very early that your currency is in your head. So I really, I, I lucked out. I mean, it would have been nice if they also told me that there was some currency in my body. Maybe it'd be a little more symmetrical. <laughs> I, was, I was lucky with my, with my upbringing. And also my parents let me read whatever I wanted. They bought me books that were old, too old for me. You know, They knew I loved politics and loved comedy, so they got me your books. And so it's, uh, if I were to give out the questionnaires to ask people how attractive I was, I'd also ask people to rate what they think uh, Orthodox Jewish upbringing uh, would be like, because it's, I think the score it would get is higher than uh, most folks would give it. I don't know. That's not a very good analogy, but you know what I mean. You think the audience there 
would give Orthodox Judaism a higher rating because there's so many Orthodox Jews in the audience or because after seeing you, they must think like after seeing after seeing you, they go like. Holy shit! Would I love to have grown in up? <laughs> would I would I love to give up uh, bacon, shellfish, and anything else delicious? Gosh, would I love to give all that up in, in order to be as funny as this guy? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know that the two are correlated. I, I I don't know if Jerry Seinfeld eats bacon, but I'm sure he does, and I'm sure it's fine. Nope. No, I think that uh, and and you do keep kosher kosher like style i've never had pork or shellfish i you know i try to avoid meat and cheese and you know like we're mixing milk and meat and so i yeah i keep kosher i do well um this is at the hudson theater yes uh the show is just for us we've been talking to alex edelman alex is is somewhat normal and better than just normal looking gentleman and and hilariously funny and um, the show, I would commend it to everyone, and spe- especially people who live on the West Coast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. I really appreciate that beautiful music. music is by Leo Cotter. He's a great Leo Cotter. New Jersey's is the last I want to thank Peter still. Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.